I wonder if you can remember in school, probably in primary school or high school where you were in PE and you were going to play uh, a game, a proper game, not like Golden Child, but like a proper, proper sport. And uh, usually what would happen is you would get the two best uh, people in the class and uh, they would then be the captains and they would pick their teams. And of course, everyone in the class knew who were the best players and everyone knew who were the worst. Like you all knew, as much as you tried to be nice about it, you all knew who was that, like one or two or three people that you did not want on your team and you did not want uh, them to have the ball when the game was on the line. So everyone knows how this situation is going to play out. The captains are going to pick the best players first and then the, the duds will be left there at the end. Now, imagine that you are in this situation and uh, the captain of one team starts to pick just the worst of the worst players, like the duds. Everyone knows who they are and he starts picking them. You know, terrible Dave, uh, clumsy Steve, come be on my team. Everyone's thinking, what is happening? And all of a sudden, this team is full of the rejects. And then imagine that that team goes on and wins that game in a thrilling fashion. They all come together under this captain and uh, despite all odds, despite all preconceived ideas, they win the game. That would make the captain look like a genius and the people, of course, would stand out as distinct because in those situations, uh, it's never all that surprising when the best players are on the one team and they win. It's like, well, of course, everyone knew that team was going to win. They had like the kid who was seven foot tall in year six. Of course, they were going to win. Uh, if the best players are chosen, then it's not a shock. But when this weak, terrible, ragtag group of individuals come together under this captain and... Uh, they come together and win, then it is a shock. It stands out as distinct. It, it communicates something very different than the best players coming together. Now, in this passage that we are going through today, we read about how God has chosen a weak, frail minority to become a treasured possession. So God does not pick the most numerous and strongest people. He is very clear to say that in his uh, statement here through Moses. Um, he says, uh, you were not, so verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love upon you. It was not because you were more in number in any way. You were actually the weakest of the peoples. And in a few chapters later, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God is clear to say, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm doing things things for you. No, you are a wicked, stiff-necked, rebellious people. So God takes this group of misfits, this small, frail people, and creates this treasured possession. And this is wonderful news for all people who recognize their own weakness and frailty. Today, as we study this passage, we will see God's purposes in choosing a people who are weak and frail to be his treasured possession. This is quite a scandalous thing. 
Uh, the first section of chapter 7 that we will look at details how God's desire is for his people to take the promised land. This is what we have seen through the book of Deuteronomy. God wants to lead his people into the promised land, this place that he is preparing for them. Uh, and in doing that, God actually has to wipe out all of the people groups who exist there in order for his people to be a wholly renewed people, a people who are set apart. So he actually says that I'm going to wipe out these people. Not only that, I want you, my people Israel, to devote them to destruction, effectively to exterminate these peoples. Now, this is quite a confronting theme for uh, all people, um, Christians as well. Uh, it raises some tough objections to God's character. In verse 2, uh, we read, When the Lord your God gives them over to you, this is the nation, so when the Lord delivers you into land and gives these people over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Now, there is no grammatical way you get around this, like to sort of say, well, no, it's just really like exterminate them from your mind. It's not anything like that. We have to accept the reality that this is saying uh, these people groups are to be devoted to destruction so long as they are in the land which God wants to give to his people. Yahweh, the God of Israel, does not want his people associating in any way with the pagan people groups because he is forming a holy people. So he doesn't want any alliance with them. And so he calls them to exterminate these peoples. And this challenges a lot of our self-made understandings of God's inclusivity. Uh, God does indeed here command the extermination. Even um, we, you might have heard about the um, so-called genocide of 1 Samuel, um, where God actually does again tell the people to devote all of the peoples of, of that particular group to destruction. Now, there are a few points that I want to make on this particular issue before we look at God's purposes in actually driving the peoples out. Three main points briefly. Firstly, we must understand that God has supreme rights over his creation. God is never accountable to us. We are accountable to him since he is our maker. Uh, the Lord gives life freely and he has the right to take life freely. Paul in Romans 9, when he is uh, detailing the history of Israel and how the Gentiles are brought in, and he's dealing with a similar issue where he says, God will uh, mercy whom he mercies and he will harden whom he hardens. And Paul says, um, creating a sort of rhetorical um, question, um, things like, well, does this make God unjust or is this sort of unfairness in, in God? Like, why would God do this? And Paul's answer is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Uh, does the clay jar turn to the potter and say, why have you made me this way? And Paul actually says, uh, who are we to answer back to God? We are the creation and we are accountable to him. Secondly, there is no uh, innocent person or people group before the Lord. Often a common objection to these sorts of themes are, how could God uh, destroy innocent peoples? 
And of course, we know there is no innocent people before the Lord. All are guilty and fall short of the glorious standards of God. Um, even apart from that, like if for argument's sake you were to say, okay, Tom, just leave the theological idea of original sin to the side for a moment. And let's just say, yes, whatever, we're all sinful before the Lord. But there are still some people who uh, do good. And I would concur with that. There's many people, particularly people who do not believe in God, who do very good things. And that's a wonderful thing about humanity. But if we look at this passage in particular, uh, these people groups were not exactly gentle and respectful people. There was rampant wickedness in the lives of these peoples. uh, And God is clear to say, I'm driving them out because of their wickedness. So we know that the Canaanites, one of the main groups that was here in this land, they regularly offered their children, their infants, um, as sacrifices to their god Molech. And uh, it's really just uh, disturbing the way they would do this. They would actually take... Um, vulnerable, defenseless babies and take them before their god, Molech, and roll them down uh, this slide, in effect, into the burning fire uh, where these babies would be burned alive. And these were the kind of people groups that were there. So we shouldn't have this picture of innocent people who were doing good, just waiting for Yahweh to reveal himself These cultures, these people groups, were similar to what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, where we read about helpless travelers just looking for a place to lodge, being raped and murdered, and God there carries out his judgment upon them. And that leads us to the third uh, point that we must understand about uh, God's character here is that God has a duty to judge the wicked practices of people in his creation. God must judge wickedness. He is a just judge. And so where evil reigns, he has a duty to judge it. God is clear about this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, where he says in verse 4, explaining to the Israelites, do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. No, no, no. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. That is why I am doing this, because there's such wickedness. Child sacrifice should not be a part of our society. There is wickedness in this nation, and and I must drive it out. See, the bigger question here is why God would be so patient as to not judge all of the wickedness that we see in this world, the wickedness that we do. This is the age-old problem of perspective where we, we like to place ourselves in the seat of God and ask, God, how could you do such a thing as wipe these peoples out? How could God do such a thing as that? When we should be placing ourselves in the seat of humility and saying, How could God have such mercy on me? Why have I not come to that end? Uh, How can God allow any to survive when there is such wickedness present in all of us? This passage reminds us that God firstly has total rights over his creation. Uh, Not only that, but he is just in judging wicked peoples deserving of punishment. He is a good judge. 
And lastly, the takeaway we should have from this is how could it possibly be that we could be spared from this punishment? How is it possible that God is so merciful and so patient, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation? How is it possible that there is such wickedness in this world and yet he is so patient? That is the the takeaway for us. And if we can have that shift in perspective from a self-centered view to a God-centered view, then it will put us in a, a much better position to then understand this passage. Now, with that said, looking back at this story, what is God's main purpose in driving wickedness out? And then what is our responsibility in light of this example? What is, what is the main purpose we see here in God designed to drive the wickedness out and then create this renewed people in this new land? The main application we should see from this is God's desire for his people to be completely set apart from the sinful practices of others. To be holy. This is his purpose. We've gone over this many times. God desires his people to be holy, which is to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different, to be set apart from the wickedness and evil of this world and to reflect God's holy character. And so the people are told here to devote These people to complete destruction. God goes on to say from verse 3 on, Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them because they would only turn you away from me. And this is, you know, God saying to his people, I'm telling you to, to devote them to destruction. So don't think for a moment that, oh, maybe if like we marry them, then they can follow the Lord. Maybe if we make some covenant with them, you know, we can sort of devote their practices to destruction, but we can keep the people. And God is saying, no, 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 that's not going to work. They will turn you away. I'm creating a renewed, holy people. So there's both a literal and symbolic nature to this. The literal is, as we've gone over, God clearly wants to punish the sin of the peoples and demonstrate his complete ability to provide for his people and call them to a holy life. Uh, there is a symbolic application that I believe we can take from this as well. That is that just as God calls the people to be uncompromising when it comes to their relationship with sinful people groups, we must also be uncompromising when it comes to sinful practices. So the application is, of course, not that we uh, separate ourselves from wicked peoples since um, uh, we are the wicked people, we are the Gentiles, the pagan nations, and we've been brought in. The point is rather that there are these sinful practices for us that we must be uncompromising with. There is wickedness that we should be uncompromising with. And I wonder if part of the reason why Uh, Perhaps we might be so shocked to see how God wipes out people groups or maybe why we are so apathetic about the seriousness in the New Testament or in Scripture as a whole uh, of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There is this constant uh, theme throughout Scripture of actually saying God's people are called to be holy, to put to death sinful practices 
because you've been renewed. So live in light of the reality that, that you have been renewed, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I wonder if a part of our struggle with that is because we simply do not understand sin. We are all susceptible to this victim mentality that avoids taking accountability for sin in our lives because we believe it's maybe someone else's fault or it's just an issue with our environment or sometimes we treat some sins as innocent. They're just innocent vices. But all sin, whether small or big, is a sin against a holy God. It's it's not the size or the level of our sin it's it's the the size or level of our holy god that the sin is against we transgress against him that's what makes sin sin is we transgress against god's holy standards so no matter how small the sin is we sin against a holy god and so if you are someone who thinks that you can indulge in a little sin it's just a small sin then can i be so blunt as to say you don't know god you simply don't know God. The Apostle John is very clear to say in his first letter, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In the next chapter of 1 John, in chapter 3, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil and the seed of Christ does not remain in him. He cannot continue in this practice of intentional sin, of treating sins lightly. It would simply show that that person does not know God. They don't know him and they're living a lie. Now, there will always be grace to cover our unintentional sins. And even for those who have been in intentional patterns of sin, who then turn from that and plead for mercy. Oh, there is grace to cover every single ounce of it. But to not see the call that we have now as those who are professing to follow Christ, to not see the call to destroy sin wherever it is present in our lives is a warning sign that we may never have actually tasted the righteousness of God and the Spirit's empowering work to conform you to the pattern of holiness. The holiness, which as the author of Hebrews says, without which we will not see the Lord. That's what our life is about, is about being conformed to this pattern of holiness as God's grace and his spirit empowers us to live in that way. God calls his people to be separate from all idolatry, immorality, anything which does not conform to his standards or would lead his people into the seductiveness of sin. Uh, just as Israel was to be a pure and holy people separate from the wickedness of pagan nations, we see this picture. God has his desire for, for uh, his people to be separate from the wickedness of these peoples. God likewise desires his church to be separate from the practices of the world which are wicked and sinful and the main reason for this is verse 6 because you are a people holy to the lord your god the lord your god has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession that's why because god in his mercy has come down and has chosen us because of nothing we have done total mercy and has said now you are my treasured possession just let that sink in for a moment. The God who owns everything, the God of heaven and earth, 
has a treasured possession and it is his people. It is you and I because of the atoning work of Christ. And that's why God looks upon his people. Even he sings with loud singing over his restored and renewed people and boasts in them because they display his glory, because they are his treasured possession. And that is a beautiful reality. And it's, it's, it's that understanding that is supposed to catapult us into this life of holiness and of seeking righteousness. Now, that is God's purposes in driving out wickedness and our response in light of that. Let's look now at God's purposes in choosing a people for himself. As we just went over, he has a treasured possession the Lord has chosen. He says, out of all of the peoples in the world, you Israel, my people, I'm choosing you, a weak and frail people. And there are two primary reasons here as to why God chooses a people for himself. And the first is to set his love upon them. That is the reason why God chooses a people for himself. It is to set his love upon them. From verse 7, Moses reminds the people, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord loves us because he loves us. It is a stark contrast to the modern notion of love, which usually involves simply physical attraction at the start, followed by affections, which generally stem from a period of sort of developing common interests and dreams together. And this is saying it was not because of any physical attraction you Israel possessed. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. Have you seen the Canaanites, how strong they are? Uh, But you, you were the fewest of all peoples. It was not based on common interests. We didn't get the opportunity to work out our likes and dislikes. It wasn't because of that. It was because of my abundance of love that just needed to be poured out upon a people. So I chose to set my affection upon you. Now, at first, this might not seem all that loving. Like imagine if I said to Jasmine, uh, I love you because I chose to love you. Jasmine, you were the fewest of all peoples, but I'm choosing to love you. Um, Enjoy my love. What a treat. Now, if you take a moment, though, to understand this and, and also realize that it is quite different in our relationship to God than between human to human relationships. If you just take a moment to understand this, then it is wonderfully comforting for us. Because if there were things within us which initially attracted God's love toward us, then we would need to have those things not only maintained, but probably increasing in order for us to feel secure in his love. How many men and women form relationships because of just physical attraction, uh, toned bodies or something like that? And, you know, we obviously realize this, we just try and lay it aside, but we, we have to remember that in 30 or 40 years, our bodies will get wrinkly and flabby and chubby and they will not look the same anymore. 
And so if that relationship was only based on physical attraction, or maybe if you've been in a relationship before and the person was attracted to you because you were really witty and funny, and, and you felt like it would just be such an exhausting thing to constantly be on. You always have to be witty. You always have to be funny because that was the basis of your relationship. That was what initially attracted them to you. Now, if you subconsciously think that God's love upon you, I say subconsciously because not many people are so arrogant and heretical to say that God's love is actually for them, but, but subconsciously, uh, if you think that God's love maybe has just a little bit, like, yes, it's the work of Christ, but it's a little bit to do with the fact that you are a really nice person. Or maybe you do. You, you're, you're in a pattern of Bible reading and prayer that would put anyone to shame. And, and that just is a, a wonderful thing that makes you feel secure in God's love. Maybe you are gifted in other areas. If there is a little bit of that in you, then you will never be able to truly bask in the freedom you get when you understand God's love for you is based upon his own eternal overflowing love that never runs out. Because God has an infinite capacity of love that has existed for all time. Like we've gone over before in John 17. Uh, what was God doing before he created anything? Well, he was a father loving the son and the spirit now pours out that love upon us, that infinite love because of nothing we have done. And that's the basis of our love. The basis of our love is his love. And if you understand that, then you can pray like David does in Psalm 25, a beautiful prayer. And you can say, Lord, do not remember the sins of my youth or my rebellious ways. But he says, when you remember me, Remember me according to your love, for you, Lord, are good. So don't, don't remember me. When you think of me, God, don't think of me based on my love for you or something that is within me. Just when you think of me, God, remember me according to your love. Because that's secure and I can, oh, I can feel confident in that. I can just throw myself at your feet in that and bask in it. God loves us because he loves us. Secondly, why does God choose a people for himself? It is to display his glory. The second half of verse 8, uh, after God explains that he set his affections upon Israel because he loved them, he reminds them how he brought them out of the house of slavery in Egypt and redeemed them with a mighty hand. And in the Exodus account of this, we read how God delivers his people uh, very slowly. God doesn't just straight away appear to Moses and say, right, Moses, tomorrow we're out of here. Get everyone ready. It's a slow process of plague upon plague upon plague. God uh, delays the exodus in a sense to display the fullness of his glory to the peoples. In fact, he says to Pharaoh, raise you up at this moment, pouring out plague upon plague to show my glory. God explicitly says that he creates his people for his glory. In Isaiah 43, in, in verse 7, he's saying, bring everyone, all, all, all of my sons from the north and from the south, bring them all to me. All of my children whom I created for my glory. 
That is why we are created for the glory of God. That is why he chooses out a people for his glory. God calls out his people to be holy for his own purposes, which is primarily to display his glory. And notice the pattern throughout scripture of how God is glorified in his people. It is not because they are mighty. It is not because they possess attractive qualities in and of themselves. For us, it is not because we rock up to a building once a week. It's not because of that. God, God isn't glorified in that. The clear pattern in Scripture is of God displaying His glory in and through His people while they are a weak, frail minority. Though there are some exceptions to this, by far, for the most part, God displays His glory through small remnants of faithful people like Daniel and his companions in exile in Babylon, uh, isolated, and God displays His glory through this small remnant of faithful people. Or we see God saying to Gideon in Judges and his army when they had more than 30,000 people, and God is very clear to say, uh, I can't deliver the Midianites with this many people because you'll think that you did it. So you strip it back, strip it back until you just have 300 people and then I'll deliver you because it will be so clear that I alone have done this. God is pleased to show his glory in a people who are weak and frail. We see this continued in the New Testament where Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter, we have this treasure. The treasure is the light of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We are so weak and, and, and fragile. Do you know how easy we are to be killed? A, a, an invisible virus can kill millions of people. We are just jars of clay. We're very easy to be killed. Not only that, that's not maybe the main point of this, but the point is that we just have weakness. We are jars of clay in order to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us because we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to spare because we have this treasure in jars of clay. It should seem like we should be devastated. I mean, do you know how many times if you read through church history, it seems like the church should have just died, but they don't. God always keeps a remnant. He always sustains his people and keeps them. He preserves them through persecution, through trials to display his glory. So God sets his love upon a small people as his treasured possession and displays his glory by leading them on a life of difficulty, trials and persecution, yet always sustaining them as he drives them deeper towards this path, which ends in us sharing in this eternal glory that God has been displaying in us. That is God's purpose in choosing a particular people for himself. As we finish, what are our responsibilities then in light of this? What are our responsibilities now as a treasured possession, as a people for his own possession? Firstly, our responsibility is to be distinct. Because we are his treasured possession, God desires us to be distinct from the practices of this world, which are not consistent with the reality of being a treasured possession. So if God's, if God's people are so corroded 
by worldly practices. If God's church is so uh, porous in the sense of being easily penetrable, it's, there's no distinction, then there's no longer a treasured possession. If, if God's possession becomes corroded and just like anything else, then there is no treasured possession because the whole point of a treasured possession is that that treasured possession is different from everything else, different from the foreign nations, different from the wickedness of the world. God clearly calls his people to be totally separate from the pagan practices of surrounding nations. And likewise, he calls us to be totally separate from the worldly practices which corrode this treasured possession identity that we have. As the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Plain and simple. Now, obviously, we engage with the world which God loves for his sake. But this is talking about the world in the sense of all things that embody the wickedness, things which corrode our distinctiveness. And James is saying, don't make yourself, don't show your life to be one that would say that you have a friendship, a partnership with worldliness. So that when someone looks upon your life, they say, well, sure, you say you follow Jesus, but what, what difference does it make? Your life looks exactly like mine. Don't, don't have that kind of friendship with the world. Be distinct. And so as, as a community, an application for us as a church plant is that we should be living in a way which is consistent with this treasured possession identity, which means that we must be distinct. And for us, this is going to be contextual. And so this is why, just to repeat what I've spoken about previously, it's why we specifically choose not to go heavy on events and pragmatic structures which sort of funnel people into tailor-made programs and groups. It's why we do whatever we can to avoid any hint of the church being just a service provider to cater for your needs rather than a community where you serve one another. Because to be a place where you are a form of a, a service provider and you funnel people into to groups that please them, you can get that anywhere in this world. You can, you can get that. I'll, I will send you to a, a club, a community group where you will be catered for. You can get that anywhere. But what you cannot get anywhere else other than the true church is a place where when everything else is stripped away, there remains a culture where devotion to Christ is treasured and where we are unashamed in keeping the simple and fundamental practices of word and prayer done in fellowship that defines the church. These people who just uh, tailor their whole lives around the worship of God. You can't get that anywhere else other than the true church. And that will make people feel uncomfortable because it will target the consumer spirit in all of us that just wants to sit back and be fed content with a few pats on the back to say, yes, you've done well. It will target that part of us. It will make us feel uncomfortable. And 
that is good because that life is not taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. And we don't want discomfort for the sake of discomfort, but we want to rid ourselves of a comfortable culture that looks no different to anything else. Because we have seen the majesty of God in Jesus Christ and we believe that He is totally worthy of every single ounce of our devotion. And that's why we do it and that's why we as a community hold on to this distinctiveness. We should reflect this distinctiveness as individuals as well. So is this treasured possession identity evident in your life? Is there a a distinctiveness? Is there a saltiness? to your life? Is there a love that is different to the common idea of love in our day where love is only ever really given to someone or people who meet a certain threshold? They've passed a little subconscious test that we have where they either make you feel good or they have enough social status or social capital that it's going to be beneficial for you. Uh, Like Jesus says, if you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about that love. That's not really love. The love that I want to be evident in my community is a self-giving, sacrificial love. So he says, love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That is a distinctive love, the kind of love which thinks more highly of others than ourselves. The kind of love that in this community says, I'm going to try and build relationships with every single person, not only those who I like to hang out with. Hopefully the bond of Christ makes it seem like we actually do enjoy hanging out with all of us. That's a powerful enough common ground. But the point is that we should have a distinctive love which is different from the kind of love of this world, which is only really doing it because we obtain some benefit, because we like that person. The love of God evident in the community puts all personal preferences aside. It lays it down for the sake of the gospel. So is there a distinctiveness in your life? Is there a saltiness? Something that is different to everything else we see in this world. Perhaps if I could just suggest one other thing, one of the easiest ways that we can be distinct in our culture is if we talk about Jesus, not in a a burdensome way, uh, not simply out of compulsion in a negative way, but when's the last time that you met someone maybe a work colleague, a stranger in the street, and you were having a discussion and they didn't know that you were a Christian and they started sharing about Jesus. That never happened to me for... In fact, I don't know if that's ever happened to me, ever. And it's not simply because, though I do try and gear conversations toward that and I would hope that it it comes out naturally, there's certainly times where I shy away from it But I've never actually had anyone. I don't know about you. I would be very interested to know if you've had someone just share Jesus. And I think, wow, what would be more distinctive in our culture than someone who actually enjoys talking about the Savior of the world? Not not in a, a, 
um, a way that's unpleasant, but in a way that shows that he has so ravished our hearts. And of course, we would just share about the savior of the world as we would share about anything else that is going on in our lives. And so perhaps there is a call upon us now to actually jump into this, to enter into this kind of good work of sharing about Christ, and that would be our distinctiveness. The last very brief application here for us, for our response to why God has chosen out a people why has God chosen out of people? It is both uh, that his people would be distinct and, and also that we would declare his praises flowing on from what we just spoke about. In Peter's first letter, he takes this identity that is in Deuteronomy 7, the identity we see in Exodus 19 of his people being a, a, um, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession. And Peter gives this to us to Gentile Christians. And he says, you are a people for his own possession. And he's taking this identity, this treasured possession. You're a people for God's possession. And he says, so that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is why, this is why you have this identity. This is why God has chosen you, chosen you out of the world to be a holy people to then declare the excellencies of the God who has done this for you. Declaring the excellencies of God quite simply means telling people how incredibly awesome God is. Just plainly, that's, that's what it means. And this is our purpose. And the declaration of these praises comes from the overflow of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Just in verse 10 of 1 Peter 2, after saying, this is so that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just think once you once you were not a people, once you were an orphan, once you were dead in sin, once you were completely lost, and now, what a transfer, not a people to being a treasured possession, an orphan to being an adopted son, in complete darkness to being brought into radiant light. Our responsibility of declaring His excellencies comes as we simply marvel at what God has done in Jesus Christ. The one who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has, he has brought us from this place of loneliness and abandonment and thrust us into a renewed family out of humiliation and shame. And he just covers it. He covers our shame with this robe of righteousness, not only covering uh, what we had done previously against him, but also giving us the status of someone who has done everything for him in Christ. He brings us out of this deep, depressive darkness into this marvelous light where, as the psalmist says, to God, even darkness is as light to him. And that's the kind of light that we are brought into. And we do this, we declare His excellencies right now as we gather. That's our purpose 
to declare his excellencies through singing, through exhorting one another, through the preaching of God's word, through having that then spill over into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and share about how awesome God is. And if, if you are feeling stale in that, like I have many times, if you're hearing this and there is, uh, again, this lingering sense of apathy, like it's just not, um, there's no spontaneous overflow of wanting to declare his excellencies. Can I just say, come back to this identity, come back to just sitting at the feet of Jesus and understanding this identity because notice the pattern Peter gives. Our practice, which is to declare his praises, flows out of the identity we have. You are a people for his own possession. Now, declare his excellencies. What we do will flow out of who we are. Be renewed in your understanding of who you are. And as we have discussed today, that is as a treasured possession. And so we are going to now sing a song to finish. And we will do just that. We will declare his excellencies. We will sing how great thou art, which is a wonderful song for us to, um, to apply this passage to us today. To sing of how great God is. That's our purpose. You want to know the will of God for you right now? Tell God how great he is and tell the world how great God is. And you will be well within the will of God for your life. Uh, so I will quickly pray as Andrew sets up and then we will sing together. Father, thank you for this, this uh, wonderful identity that you've given to us, a people for your own possession, a treasured possession. Help us to declare your excellencies now out of the overflow of this wonderful reality of what you have done in Jesus Christ, where you've washed us clean, that we may be your holy people. And so now we sing, uh, God, how great you are. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.